0: Faiza Aziz is a second-year medical student. Before enrolling in medical school, she worked for many years as a medical interpreter. In this episode of Lifespan, Faiza explains the role that medical interpreters play in the healthcare system, and she describes the potential dangers to patients if physicians and hospitals fail to use trained medical interpreters when they're necessary. Faiz's personal history contributed to her skills as a medical interpreter. She's not only fluent in several languages, she's very familiar with several cultures.
1: You know, I grew up in Kenya. I grew up in a very multicultural, multilingual society in a small town in the Rift Valley Province. So I grew up really around a lot of people that spoke different languages, that had different cultural backgrounds that practiced different religions, and that was just normal. And what year did you come to the United States? 1996, November. Tell me what languages you speak. My mother tongue is Somali, so I speak fluent Swahili. I do have um, advanced understanding of Arabic, probably intermediate in some of the Kenyan local languages that I grew up around. I understand like a few words of maybe beginning Italian and a little bit of Spanish.
0: And where in the U.S. have you lived? When you first came here,
1: where did you go? So we came straight from Kenya um, to the Twin Cities uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota area. And they have a very large Somali population there, don't they? They do, and I think that's one of the things that um, attracted a lot of the Somalis. Somalis are very communal people, so they like to live around their kinfork, they like to live around their people, and when one person comes somewhere and they find some sort of stability, pretty much everybody kind of follows them.
0: After finishing high school in Minnesota, Faisa majored in biology and public health in college. Then, between the time she earned her bachelor's degree and years later when she entered medical school, she held various positions in the medical community and sometimes used her language skills as she worked. When she began to work formally as a trained medical translator, it was a logical professional transition.
1: Community has always been something big in my life. Being able to serve the community was something I knew that I wanted to always do. Towards the end of my undergraduate year is when I got a job at one of the major hospitals in the Twin Cities. This was a level one trauma hospital. So I started working as just a patient care person who was um, a bridge between non-English speakers, primarily Somali at the time. I did get hired at the infectious disease clinic, and that's where my real journey of really looking into clinical medicine more seriously started. So those years, I was working as a social worker, both as a medical... Case management for both language specific, meaning that patients that spoke both Swahili and Somali, but at the same time for mixed patients in the HIV clinic. So I was bridging that language barrier in the HIV clinic. And then after that, I transferred over to the interpreter department in the same hospital around 2005 to 2000 until I I came to medical school. And usually, we don't call them medical translators. We actually call them medical interpreters because there's a difference. For translation, you're actually working with the written material. So it's, you're transcribing from one language to another, but it's mostly dealing with the written work. So when you see pamphlets and things like that, that's a translation. But for an interpreter is uh, someone who is conveying that content using the spoken template. But I still think of translation as being
0: literally listening to what the patient is saying and then literally saying the same thing in in another language to the doctors or nurses. But interpretation, I think of more as being able to filter it through your own mind and then telling the doctors and nurses the way you have filtered what the patient has said.
1: Am I getting this wrong? No, you're correct. I think there's definitely some translation that's happening while you're interpreting. But I think the major difference is that when you're translating, it's mostly the exact same words, the exact same syntax, same words that you're translating from one language to the other. Now for interpretation, if for example, a doctor says, um, can you tell me what brings you in today? If I had to translate that in one of the languages that a patient speaks, for example, Somali, sometimes it doesn't follow exactly the same way. So the words might be disjoint, but I have to listen for the content. So the doctor is asking what the patient is here for today. And I would translate the content. I would translate the meaning, not necessarily the exact each single word. Because sometimes when you're translating that in a written form, it is the same words in a different language, but when you're speaking, it's very different. It might not make sense if you're translating the exact same words the exact same way that it comes. Now
0: that's very helpful. The literal translations just do not work from one language to another. Shortly before interviewing Faisa for this Lifespan episode, I read an article in The New Yorker magazine about the importance of competent medical translation and the harm that can be done if the translator ignores the patient's concerns. It talked about one interpreter who had really made a terrible error because the patient came in. It turned out the patient had carbon monoxide poisoning, and the patient was trying to tell the story about how she had been cooking when she got very ill. And the interpreter kept saying to her, the doctors don't want to hear about your stove. Stop telling me about that. And she didn't. She didn't give them that key piece of information. And it took them much longer to figure out that it was carbon monoxide poisoning from the stove because the interpreter refused
1: to tell that part of the story. I would probably make an assumption that this was not a a professionally trained interpreter. And that's why we have standardizations, there's standards of care that have been set by these national organizations, there's standards of care that have been set for professional training so that we try to avoid some of this miscommunications, for instance, that happened with this incident that you were talking about. A full interpreter is really qualified. They are trained. There's certifications that people have to go through to interpret accurately and completely. They They have to maintain impartiality they have to respect the patient's privacy and also at the same time, why they maintain the integrity of the content of the information that they're relaying. Do you have to be certified to be a medical interpreter to work for a hospital? For many places, yes. There is some certification that you have to go through, especially nowadays. Now that is different for people that have been working in the field for probably 15 plus years. In the past, You just had to be fluent or maybe somewhat understanding of the difference in languages or speak a different language so that you're able to work as an interpreter. But even those people have, in the last 10 years or so, have gone through some of these trainings. And how long does it take to become certified as a medical interpreter? It varies
0: state by state. It varies by company. Faisa explained that some interpreters are employed directly by a hospital, but many work for a third party, and hospitals contract with that party to provide interpreters as needed. And some hospitals rely on both methods, depending on the language spoken by the patient.
1: There are some hospitals and healthcare companies that do have their own staff. They also do utilize remote modalities, and what I mean by that is that, for example, My hospital, which was uh, one of the biggest hospitals in the Twin Cities, we had a whole department of staff interpreters of probably about 70 or maybe more employees, which range from different languages, Somali, Spanish, Arabic, Amharic, Oromo, Karen, Hmong, you name it, the languages that are more predominantly utilized in Minnesota. If a patient came in who speaks maybe Cantonese, for example they would call an outside agency. So some hospitals, depending on how big that healthcare facility is, they have their own staff. And I think that is mostly the gold standard in terms of interpretation, but they do also use remote modalities, whether that's utilizing the phone or the video to get in contact with someone who speaks that language.
0: I would think that traditionally medical interpretation was very informal, that hospitals and doctors would count on a family member to do the interpretation. Do you have any sense of when this became formalized and when the requirement that there actually be professional medical interpreters there, when that became standard in the United States? Do you have any idea when that happened?
1: I think around the late 1990s probably even earlier than that is when we started seeing the formalization of incorporation of interpreters in the healthcare system as part of the staff
0: why is it important to have standardized this requirement
1: i think in any other field when someone makes a mistake uh, or has a miscommunication it might not be it might not be a big deal but when Um, When you're in a healthcare setting, when someone makes a mistake, a communication mistake, a miscommunication, that could be dire consequences for that patient and for the physicians. So that's why the standardization has to be there. Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which stipulates that no person can be discriminated because of their race origin, that is a federal law. There's also state laws that have specifically in terms of language access. And this applies to not necessarily just non-English speakers, but also patients who are of hard hearing. Interpretation or accessibility have to be provided. It's illegal not to provide that. There's some stipulations in the Affordable Care Act that passed some language accessibility rights for the patients. So when a patient comes in and... They don't speak the language or have a hard time understanding the medical jargon, what the provider should be doing is call for an interpreter.
0: I asked Faissa to explain in more detail the complex role an interpreter plays when navigating communication between medical staff and a patient.
1: I think interpreters are very, very important because they build a report with the staff and this creates a level of trust and connection with both the patient and the staff. So for example, when the patient comes in and has a question, or maybe a patient comes in with a very critical illness and the provider has to deliver very heavy news to them, because of that connection, because of that report that has been built, that message might be received much better for the patient because of that relationship that already has been established. We know that there's a power dynamics between the provider and the patient. And especially when a patient is non-English speaking, there is a potential for miscommunication. There's a potential for abuse. Actually, one of the roles of an interpreter is to be an advocate mostly for the patient and advise the patient on what's next and what to do and how to maybe file a report or go to patient representative or file an incident report um, with the hospital or that agency to make sure that that patient is taken care of. Generally, the healthcare system is very complex. And when an interpreter is aware of those resources and a patient has questions about that, I think the interpreter is useful also in making sure that the patient is able to get the services that they need.
0: It's one thing to be fluent in a language. It's another thing to be fluent in a culture. And I'm wondering how cultural fluency also affects medical interpretation and the kind of sensitivity you have to
1: have with the patient's culture. And that's very, very critical. It's somewhat lost in the new mode of healthcare delivery now, which is called telemedicine or telehealth. For medical interpreters, they do actually have four roles. And one of them is the conduit. A conduit is just the vessel where the interpreter relays the information from the provider to the patient and from the patient back to the provider. That's one of the roles. The second role is the clarifier, which is, for example, when a doctor says, you know, we're going to do, for instance, um, an endoscopy. So interpreter interprets that and relates that information to the patient. But uh, maybe the patient would like to know what an endoscopy means. What's the procedure entail? Colonoscopy is another example where the patient has to have preparations before they come in for that procedure. So it's just not colonoscopy, but it's really clarifying what the procedure is all about. And that's the clarifier role of the interpreter. The other one I think I mentioned a little bit earlier was advocacy.
0: And the fourth role of the interpreter face explains is as a cultural broker, essentially acting as a bridge between two
1: cultures. Having that cultural awareness, having that cultural capital, definitely does smooth out some of the misunderstandings. For example, pain, just the simple word pain. I think just even in general in English, it might be subjective. People interpret it very differently. And you can imagine how that might be interpreted, especially in when someone speaks a different language, because pain can mean I'm having a sharp pain, or it can mean that I just don't feel well, and maybe I'm going through grief, but the patient just says pain. You have to elicit what the patient's perception is, but also in a very sensitive subject, for example hysterectomy, when, when that procedure has been done for some cultures, and especially in Somali cultures, that could mean a very different thing. And for the provider to just say, okay, we're going to do hysterectomy, that has cultural implications for the Somali patient. So an interpreter can help the patient understand the reasons for the hysterectomy, for example, at the same time, help ease and smooth that conversation. With the provider so that this patient does not suffer or understands the reasons why it's critical, but at the same time suffer the cultural stigma that comes in with hysterectomy.
0: Can you go into more detail on that? Explain, for example, how you would describe hysterectomy to a Somali patient?
1: In my hospital, what I worked at, we trained some of the physicians especially when there are incoming fellows or residents, to understand some of the cultural nuances. For example, hysterectomy is one of them. Because hysterectomy for a Somali woman means that they are never able to have any more children. And culturally, it implies that uh, you know maybe their husband might not want them anymore. So it's just not delivering the news that you have a medical condition that requires a hysterectomy. But because having children in in my culture, in Somali culture, is very significant. It means, you know, wealth, it means family values, it means a lot of things. When you come from a very strict cultural roles where a woman's status is based on having children and how many children she has, having a hysterectomy at a young age can be devastating news.
0: I would think it it would be similarly uncomfortable, depending
1: on the culture, to
0: discuss colonoscopy as well. How would you describe colonoscopy to patients? And, and how would you recognize if colonoscopy to them would be would be very sensitive, very embarrassing to discuss? How do you even navigate patients' embarrassment?
1: It is similar because it's something that, um, especially I think for men, going just to the doctor for preventative care is a hard thing to do. For many of these people that I was interpreting for, you know, they come from a very low resource settings. So unless something major is happening, unless they uh, have extreme symptoms and they're really sick, that's the only time they go to the hospital. So even just understanding that colonoscopy is a you know, part of screening or uh, preventative care that they need to be so that to avoid bigger problems is something that it really takes time for you to explain and maneuver that. When I was delivering that news, uh, just being a female interpreter, delivering that news to an elderly uh, person, maybe who's around 60 or 50 years old, might be looked at very different. But having a team of uh, you know the nurse, the physician who is letting them know what the procedure is about, but really being impartial and making sure that the patient understands the reasons why that is being done. It takes time and it takes practice.
0: You mentioned working in an HIV clinic in the Twin Cities, and we all know how stigmatized HIV can be. Can you talk a little bit about that and and the difficulties of medical interpretation for HIV
1: patients? That clinic really opened my eyes uh, a lot for me. It really helped me grow as a professional. I really had to meet the patient where they are, because um, I came to understand that it's not necessarily the disease itself or just saying the name, but it was about their safety. Um, It was about protecting that relationship that they had with me or the HIV clinic so that they can continue to get the care and the necessary medications that they needed to survive. But it was also maintaining confidentiality for the patient because that's something that we are taught. uh, That's something that we're trained as an interpreter. So it really made me meet the patients where they are. And if the patients say that they, you know, they did not want to, for instance, call the disease the name HIV, I, I would call them what they wanted me, what, what they wanted to call. Because at the end, this was about them. This was about them coming in to making sure that they get their care, making sure that they continue to stay in care and be able to get the medicines. I would let them know that if we end up ever, you know, accidentally meeting outside, I do not approach you. I don't know who you are unless you want to make that known to whoever you are with that, you know, you know me from the hospital so that they feel comfortable to come back and continue with the care.
0: Can you give us an example of when interpretation was done poorly and it ended up in
1: um, subpar medical care? Yeah, so there was... um, an incident where I was called in uh, at the, in the emergency care for a patient who had been, who had returned back because they were, um, they came back with the same infection about maybe seven hours after they were discharged. And uh, prior to that, and I was working during that whole time, Prior to that, uh, the hospital or the personnel had used uh, remote or uh, phone interpretation. And this patient um, did have allergies to one of the medications that was given. But for some reason, maybe that information was just not shared or was not elicited from the patient, and the patient came back, um, had broken out in a rash. and when. The provider asked, um, you know, did you do something? Did you eat something? And the patient said, no, I just took the medicine that you gave me, but this is what happened. And we come to find out that um, when the patient, uh, patient was never asked what the allergies were, when I asked the patient what did they use an interpreter, they said yes, but they used a video interpreter and the sound was not properly relayed. For some reason, there was a miscommunications also, but the the device kept going in and out of reception, I guess.
0: This brings us to tele- telemedicine and interpretation. There's a real difference because you're not in the same room with the patient. You don't have the connection you have with someone that you're in the same room
1: with. How does that affect medical interpretation? So the, prior to COVID, I think we were seeing a emergence of what we call in my my world as an interpreter, remote modality, which is using the phone and video. And that was gaining more speed, but not the light speed that we have seen, especially um, after or during the pandemic. But prior to that, some of the remote modalities that were being utilized for interpretation were being done in very short settings in terms of, um, you know, patient just coming in for medication uh, refill, patient just coming in for a quick checkup. However, things really changed, especially during COVID because of being restricted, not going to the patient rooms. We saw an increased use of telemedicine or remote modalities for interpreting. And that was no problem. Um, obviously, we had to prevent the transmission. But at the same time, I think What people feared most, which is in some ways coming true, is it's becoming the norm. We were seeing about 30 to 40 or double uh, the numbers. And this is through video or phone. You could tell the conversation was just not more than fielding concerns for the patients. For example, there was a patient who called in several times um, one Friday afternoon. She was elderly and she had run out of her medication for diabetes, uh, her insulin shots and um, she had called in several days. Every time when she called in the phone tree, she would be linked to an interpreter, but she'll be like, okay, we'll call you back, we'll relay the message to your nurse or your doctor, and they would give you a call back. So this patient was running out of her medication, and on the last day before uh, she ran out of her medication, she called and I picked up the phone, and she said, I don't know what to do. My blood sugar is really, really high, and I'm afraid that if I don't get my medication, I might end up coming to the hospital because she has she had other comorbidities and other um, underlying conditions. So knowing how critical the situation was, I relayed the message the same way that everybody does, you know, relay to the nurse, the triage nurse, and that message will be passed on. And then about three hours later the patient called back and she had not received any callback and it was getting towards the end of Friday. So because I knew Um, The staff over there, I found the nurse, and actually that information was relayed to the doctor. They did refill her medication, and she got her medication. So I think the thing is, with telemedicine, we don't have that personal connection, for example, where a patient feels comfortable to say, I'm really worried about this. So that becomes very challenging. Those are the things that in-person interpretation has done um, that we tend. To lose through the devices, sort of like a missed opportunities or lost in translation, for example. If a patient has, let's say, a low extremity edema, or you have, you know, a calf swelling, which might be related to cardiovascular issues, and you're just talking about the upper part of the body, the provider is not able to elicit or see those things. So I think that's what's lost in telemedicine. And it can be very conflicting and even much more complex, especially in a patient who does not speak English. And in my world with this social bonding, and this social bonding is what creates those relationships, what creates those connections, what creates trust, what increases patient, patient satisfaction, and those are the things that we tend to lose when we go through the devices. As Faiza explains, telemedicine
0: often makes health inequities even worse. You know, hospitals and clinics um, that serve a lot of patients with limited English proficiency are already underfunded uh, compared to hospitals serving mainly English speakers. Has this affected their ability to provide translators?
1: It does. I think one of the biggest problems is um, there's very little funding for language accessibilities. And I think that's one of the barriers that this hospitals face. They have to cut down their staff of interpreters because of that. And I think that's a missed opportunity because if we're being fair to those communities that we serve, especially those that are around our vicinity, then we have to provide those services for those people.
0: You know, you're going to be a physician in three years. Tell me how your experience as a medical interpreter is likely to change what your approach will be with patients as a physician.
1: I think for me, I've always really cared about equity. I've always been an advocate. As an interpreter, I think, what is the patient's perspective? So I can be giving them the best treatment, I can be giving them the best intervention that I think is possibly out there. But if the patient is not receiving what I'm giving them, then I think I need to do more work. And first thing I think for, as an interpreter, what it has taught me is that I have to elicit the patient's perspective. So I think for me, what being a medical interpreter has taught me is to be equitable. How am I serving that patient, whether they speak English or not? How am I serving them to the best of my abilities? Do they find the information that I've given them Um, satisfactory to them. You want the patient to be on your side. You want to be on the same side with the patient. And it's just not a one-way street. Do you think interpreting has made you a better listener? Absolutely. I can give them all the scientific information about their care and what the disease is and progression, all that and everything. But at the end of that encounter, if the patient does not really understand what I'm trying to tell them, if, if the patient has a different perspective, then I think I have not listened to the patient or I have not heard them. And they have to be heard. Yeah, that's such
0: an interesting perspective because so many doctors assume that the patient is at fault if they're not understanding things well. But it, you just described that you think you're doing something wrong if, if you're not being understood and you have to figure out a different way to approach the patient.
1: Absolutely, just like any other human being, in order for me to establish a relationship with the person, first we have to listen to each other. And I think we have to really step back as physicians, as providers, and listen and elicit the patient's perspective and see what their understanding of that whole encounter is, what they want in their care, because after all, this is their bodies. They know their bodies way more than we do. And I think we have to solicit that information from them.
0: Faiza emphasized how important culturally competent medical interpreters are for both the healthcare system and the well-being of patients,
1: particularly in our diverse society. Physicians are not trained in everything. Physicians, some some of them don't know, you know, the health insurances and how that plays into patients' um, accessibility. And sometimes because interpreter work with a wide array of patients. They might know some of these resources or where a patient can get assistance or where the provider can refer a patient to. So please use a professional interpreter. Don't ever use family members because that could be unethical. Information might be misconstrued. And ask for the patient's perspective. Ask what they have understood from that whole encounter, you know.
0: You know, you've just described what a really good doctor should do as a matter of
1: course. Absolutely. I think it's important that we're all in the same boat because I don't think there's anybody who comes into the hospital expecting, you know, just to come in to visit the doctor and say hi. Obviously, people are there for a purpose. It's a very sensitive, it's a very anxious environment. It can be tense and we want to ease that as much as possible.
0: Faiz's experience as a trained medical interpreter highlights the vital role medical interpreters play when they interact with non-English speaking patients. She also explains what can be lost in translation literally when medical care is provided online rather than in person, a modality we're seeing increasingly frequently. There's so much that physicians, nurses, and medical translators can miss when they're not in the room with the patient. Competent medical translation is one of the less visible, yet most necessary bedrocks in an equitable healthcare system. Lifespan is a production of WOEB Public Media. I'm Jackie Wolf, professor of social medicine at Ohio University and the executive producer and host of Lifespan. Adam Rich is our producer, audio engineer, and audio editor. Join us next month when we learn about testicular cancer from the patient's perspective.